Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Room on YesFM 100.3, your voice in the valley. Hope you're all having a great afternoon. Nice to not have some rain for a change, isn't it? So today in the Women's Room with me, I have a friend and colleague, Helen Hip. Helen comes from Adelaide, and she's a multi-talented woman. Uh, all the women I talk to on this show have many <laughs> varied talents. Um, and Helen uh, describes herself as an educator a grief and loss counsellor and a mentor working with women in the second half of life to become who they were always meant to be, which I think is a beautiful statement that we'll be talking about later. But welcome, Helen. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Kath. Happy to be here. That's great. Um, So you've had some wild weather in Adelaide recently. You were just telling me about um, what's happening in your backyard. Yes, yes, we did have uh, sort of a mini mini cyclone a couple of weeks ago and a massive gum fell down in the back of my yard and it went knocked out my yard and my neighbour's yard and fences and sheds but thankfully nobody was hurt nobody was killed no pets were harmed so we've got people cleaning up the mess probably for a, a very long time <laughs> but it was yeah pretty scary thing because Adelaide you know stuff like that just doesn't happen in Adelaide mm. so um, it does now apparently yeah, well, in fact, um, the kids came home, or one of my kids came home from school yesterday and said something about climate change and that they'd heard there was going to be all these more cyclones and this and that in in area where, where we live, which, mm. um, you know, hasn't, I don't think it's ever had a cyclone, don't quote me, but I don't think we've had many cyclones in rural um, New South Wales. Um, mm. I used to experience them in Townsville, but not here. But yeah, the weather is getting... Um, a bit mad, of course. Mm. So, yeah. Um, so, thanks for coming on, Helen, uh, to my show today. So, I thought we might just um, talk about many of the things that you do and we can just see there where the conversation goes to. So, you describe yourself as an educator, but I have to say, despite knowing you for a couple of years, um, I'm not actually sure what your educator pathway was. How did you get into educating in the first place and what have you educated people in? Ah, well, I've had a very long and checkered history with that. I I initially, many, many, many years ago, um, trained as a primary school teacher and um, worked for many years in um, primary schools uh, in the Northern Territory and in Queensland, working primarily with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, people, children, early childhood. And um, from there, I also did some work with some migrant migrant children and then got into working in um, a tertiary setting with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who were in preparation programs going into tertiary um, institutions uh, to study and sort of have kind of stayed in that area for quite some time and at uh, one point sort of made a change, change of career a bit and moved into more into counselling and palliative care, but I also am still working um, in universities, uh, teaching in a palliative care course, teaching the sort of the counselling, spiritual care, that sort of um, communication units, and um, have just this year started uh, teaching some undergraduate students in loss and grief counselling. So I've had sort of started off in the in the primary school working with um, Indigenous children, and have just sort of meandered through my long long and checkered career and um yeah so i i think you know the whole the whole process of my career has been around education and around um counseling um and it's just taken many many forms so i've just sort of seen things and thought well oh, that sounds interesting and i've gone for it and so i've worked in lots of, of um you know taught with um alzheimer's australia and um with cota and lots of organisations just doing specific programs with them um, so just a varied thing but basically yeah, education and counselling are the two things that I, I seem to have come back to and, and, and spiralled around to throughout my career mm, Yeah, very interesting different things and so with the Indigenous kids and the migrants, were you, were you teaching them English or what were you actually educating them in? No, no, that was, it was, well part of it was um, English teaching but um, it was just being a, you know, a regular early childhood um, teacher, so um, with the migrant kids, there was an element um, of teaching teaching English, but you know, generally it was sort of you know general curriculum um, for, for for children in primary school, but t- teaching in Indigenous schools. Uh, did you actually train as a primary school teacher then at university? Or? Yeah, yeah, I did. Oh. That was my first degree. I did um, primary school teaching. Oh, okay, your first degree, radio. So then, what was your second one? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I've only had one degree, but I've done lots and lots and lots of training. I've done lots of postgraduate stuff. Um, I worked at one point. Um, my master's uh, was done in um, distance education um, when it was sort of not really online. That shows shows how long ago that was. Um, so it wasn't really even online then, um, as as distance education is now. Um, and we used to get you know packages of stuff in the mail and and then post assignments back and stuff like that and I was just thinking before I came on the program that my master's thesis at that time was looking at how to support women um, who were coming back to study because I used to really love um, in the work that I was doing in the tertiary sector working with mature age women who came back into study because they were so motivated they started from a base of being really quite insecure not knowing exactly you know what they were doing here having the imposter syndrome and thinking i don't even know how i got into the university and you know i'm gonna flunk out um and they did so well once they found their little niche they were so motivated and they were really exciting to work with and seeing them from starting uni and i used to run preparation courses through to them finishing there was amazing changes in them so i I think that was kind of one of the first times i really started working with um with um older women yeah, um, that's really cool. I, I like that. Um, it's a bit sort of like educating a reader almost reminds me of, you know, because these women do, I mean, have, like you say, the imposter syndrome and all those things. I mean, I suffered that as well. And and loss of or lack of, of belief in self and, and a sort mm. of loss of self and, and sometimes finding that education, that will to study and at a time of life when they can actually do it. Uh, but to have someone... So were you helping them through with counselling as well, these women? Uh, not so much counselling, although there was a good deal of counselling sort of went on um, as well. Um, it was more like preparation to study stuff. So, you know, learning how to reference, how to write essays, how to research, all of those sorts of preparation for uh, university studies was more the area that I was working in. But inevitably part of that was, you know, looking at some of those personal issues that were really impacting on on um you know how they might think about themselves as a as a tertiary student mm, yeah all that's mindset stuff hey mm. um <clears throat> pardon me i have a a friend who's actually come on this um show um i think or i've been planning on having her on <laughs> <laughs> and she um she runs uh workshops for you know researchers uh, academics who are mm. wanting to write papers and are struggling to write papers. And, and the people who sign up to her program, she doesn't market to women, but they are primarily women who sign up. And what she finds is that, in fact, it's it's not so much the whatever the subject matter is or any difficulty with writing or referencing or all that kind of thing, but almost all of the issues that these particular women have with, with uh, finding and committing the time to write their paper is really mindset stuff. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. Mm. Yep. Yeah, and so she's ended up doing a whole bunch of sort of mindset coaching and, and working with that and, and less on the actual, this is how you write a paper, which I think is how it yeah. started off. and I, you know, I, as I said, I, I did a lot of that too because often, you know, with the tertiary type skills that, that, that I was teaching at that time, you know, once they got it, they really got it and they did really well because they were really keen, they were excited about study, they weren't like a lot of the undergraduate students that, you know, you, work, you know, they go from high school into uni and sometimes they don't want to be there. They're, they're there because mum and dad said they should be there or whatever. So they're not, you know, not all of them, but, you know, there was a good many of them who were really not that interested. Whereas these women, once they got those skills and realised that they could do it, and it was all kind of fairly basic stuff, it's just that they'd never heard of it before, um, they just did tremendously well because they were excited and they were interested and they were grateful that they had the opportunity to have another go when you know often as you know younger people for whatever reason they weren't able to go to university or it wasn't seen as a pathway for them or you know there wasn't the money or you know whatever the other reasons were that they didn't pursue um you know with their goal um at at a university in their earlier years so I, I just absolutely loved working with them. And, yes, it was a lot of that mindset stuff because the, the technicalities of writing, once they got it, which was usually pretty quickly, they were great with that. But it was still the sort of, oh, gee, I don't know, and 
I'm not sure I should be here and, you know, I'm a lot older than the other kids and my brain doesn't work as well and, you know, none of that was true. That was all mindset stuff. Mm, yeah, and it it's affects us obviously in, in all aspects of life, not just in studying, but that's, that's really mm. fantastic. So you don't do that kind of thing anymore? That's a past... In your checkered career, yeah, as you describe it, <laughs> I'm wondering what's the you know checkered career. I'm thinking what's lives, the bad yes. things. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, then, how was it? You said you kind of naturally ended up, you know, doing the counselling. But how did you do? You think was there a particular reason, instance, inspiration, or anything like that for you to move primarily into the grief and loss counselling that you do? Yeah, I've actually thought about this a, a lot of times, trying to work out what it was. I'd always sort of um, been a counsellor, you know, from as long as I can remember, you know, at, at school, even at primary school, people used to come and tell me stuff and, and you know, ask my opinion about stuff. So I must have, you know, counsellor written on my head, even when I'm out in the shops, you know, I suddenly have people who come up and start crying <laughs> and, and or telling me stuff on the bus and you just go, oh, oh, okay, well, that's kind of like counselling and I'm just sitting on the bus next to you. How did that happen? <laughs> so I often wonder that, you know, whether I've got, please tell me your issues, I'm a counsellor written on my forehead somewhere and I just don't see it. I have been meaning um, to tell you that, actually. <laughs> oh, have you? <laughs> I can't look, look more closely in the mirror in future. Um, so I've always kind of had, had that, about me and when I was uh, working in, in the tertiary area it, with those the, the women I was just talking about um, there was an opportunity for me to um, to do educational counselling and so I did that as a postgraduate um, while I was working with those particular women because I did realise that there was a lot of that sort of mindset stuff and a lot of counselling involved it wasn't just the academic skills stuff so that's what got me into there and one of the topics that I did in that course was loss and grief um, and the lecture in that was absolutely amazing and I was pregnant at the time and there was another pregnant woman in that course and the two of us spent the entire time with our heightened emotional stuff during pregnancy crying because you know all this stuff looking at loss and grief and you know they had particular things about people dying although you know loss and grief is much much broader than just dying but I just remember just spending a lot of time out in the corridor with this other pregnant woman and crying because it had it, it really sort of hit me emotionally that you know all of this stuff that we were learning but at the same time I was really really lit up by the whole the whole thing and so I did um I did do some more um counseling stuff but I was always gravitating towards that loss and grief and then at one stage I I was uh, I did some volunteering work at a palliative service um in South Australia just near where I lived and a lot of that stuff was loss and grief as well. And then I went on and did more training in specifically in palliative care um, counselling because that was really interesting to me. And at some point, I also ended up going to a, um, to a weekend workshop run by a Buddhist nun. And I have no idea how I ever found out about this because, you know, I wasn't Buddhist. I didn't know people who were Buddhist. I didn't sort of move in those circles. And somehow I got this brochure about this thing and it was about spiritual care of the dying. And so I went along and I asked everybody I knew whether they had left this in my letterbox and nobody ever said that they did. So I went along to that and that was just the most amazing weekend. And I, you know, read a number of their, their books that they were talking about and we talked about death and dying. And I suddenly thought, wow, this is really, this is really what's interesting. And so from there, um, you know, just more training. I went across and did a spiritual care of the dying course in America. At one point, I just popped across there for a week to do this workshop I really wanted to do. <laughs> that was before COVID, obviously. Mm. And um, and yeah, and then I I just got work working in in palliative care. And um, I I worked. I ended up working at a Buddhist hospice um, in Queensland for about eighteen months, um, and that was looking at loss and grief and I ran workshops on loss and grief and I had one-to-one counselling with not only the people who who were in palliative care who were dying but also with family members and then follow-up bereavement stuff afterwards and um, when we came back to South Australia after that stint I also got um, another um, another job with a community palliative care service and again stayed there for about 18 months um, again working and that was you know a lot in people's homes because they um they 
it wasn't a hospice situation. Um, and I just totally loved working working with loss and grief and end-of-life care and all of that sort of stuff. And I remember when I told my sisters one time that that's where I was going, they went, oh, my God, that's so depressing. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I just absolutely love it. And they just looked at me like I was nuts. And it's kind of a conversation stopper often, you know, if you're at meeting new people, they say, what do you do? And you say, oh, you know, I work, I don't anymore. But, you know, at that stage, oh, I work in palliative care and I do grief and loss counts. And they go, oh, what a downer. And mm. go, oh, no, 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 no. So, so, um, so why do you think that you, why is it that you love it so much? I don't, I don't actually know. Part of it, I think, is um, that very often at end of life, people really, um, they kind of work out, what's important and what's not and so often when you're working with the people who are in palliative care not always but but quite often they will sort of know at some level whether they're you know they or their family are are acknowledging that they are dying um or you know whether whether they don't but at some level they do know that they have a limited time and so for many, many people, that really, really kind of sorts out what's important and what's not. And, and people get really real. And so I've had some of the most incredible conversations with people, um, you know, who have known they were, they were dying. Um, and, you know, talked about things that were important to them and, you know, reminisced about things and talked about what was important for their family and, um, you know, setting up stuff to make sure that their family was going to be okay. And then, of course, afterwards working with with the family members um, to work through the, the grief and bereavement stuff. So I think it's, I, th- I think it's kind of the, the intensity, the rawness and the realness um, of, of how people are when they're, uh, not, not just in palliative care, but also in loss and grief. Because, you know, if, if people are coming along for counselling and loss and grief, it's a really, um, yeah, it, it's kind of, there's a rawness, there's an intensity there. Um, and, you know, they're in touch with stuff that, in the normal everyday life they're not and so it's just yeah it's just a i find a fascinating area to be in because people kind of really have huge aha moments and you know there's been amazing changes that i've seen in people as a result of going there to those places that often people don't go to or don't want to talk about Mm, fascinating and i think i was just wondering if perhaps grief is an emotion that is just too difficult to really repress in the way that a lot of other emotions are and and so that it comes to the surface i guess a bit more easily um in those situations do you do you think that or do you think it's just because of the situation and that grief is normally something you can hide as well as any other emotion um well i think grief kind of isn't one one emotion as such that you know grief is it can be you know being angry it can be intensely sad it can be feeling guilty it can be you know any range of um, emotions are part of part of grief and it's a very it's very very individual um and i think you know i certainly have met people who have been very good at at hiding hiding their grief and not wanting to talk about it and you know for you know that that is you know they keep saying that um the Western world is kind of very good at avoiding talking about death and dying and it's, it's grief grief denying or death denying. Um, so I think it depends on the individual person. It depends on their resilience. It depends on their, um, you know, how, how they've dealt with stuff, in, with hard stuff in the past, whether they have dealt with hard stuff in the past or not, um, whether um, they've got support around them. There's just, you know, a huge amount of variables um that that people people kind of bring to bring to grief and those people that that often do um you know decide that you know i'm not going to go there that's that's i'm just going to get on with my life and not think about it anymore very often it will come back at some point and bite them because um you know they've just repressed it but it hasn't gone away it's still there and um i know you know a couple of people that um have had sort of a later grief or have had some some trigger at some later point which might not even be related necessarily to to their own grief and then suddenly oh out it all comes because you know suddenly that's triggered something in them and they're just going oh where's this all come from but often it's sort of that repressed grief 
finding finding a way to come out. Because mm, people may have been repressing, I suppose, different aspects of grief sin- since childhood, and then um, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, and then getting older, letting it all come out. Uh, on yes. FM, we've been talking with Helen Hip from Adelaide about grief and loss counselling, which is fascinating. And can I just go back a little bit to the the author or the person unknown who provided you with the spiritual care of the dying? <laughs> you know, once in the mail, I got a couple of blocks of chocolate, and just randomly. And I asked every single person I knew, and no one ever adopted <laughs> saying yes, they'd sent me these blocks of chocolate. And it didn't change my life really in the way that your brochure did. But, <laughs> but, it did, but in one way, it was like, you know, how nice that someone sent me some. And it was really nice chocolate. It wasn't just, you know, random. It was really good quality stuff. And, wow. And that, and that was a, must be at least 10 years ago or more. And, and I still remember it because <laughs> it was such a like, who has surprised me with this? Anyway, um, that just brought that back to me when you said it. But you said it was, you know, a Buddhist run and workshop or what have you. So mm-hmm. did they mm-hmm. touch on, you know, the Buddhist belief of reincarnation or anything in any of that work? Um, not, not in that particular workshop. Um, because they were really looking at, at death and dying and, um, you know, the, the Buddhists have some very interesting philosophies on death and dying and, and you know, one of the things is that, that you you look at death every day and just go, you know, today could be my last day and, you know, what how am I going to live it because it could be my last day. So they actually have, you know, meditations and stuff that, it, that they do regularly that actually looks death in the face every day and, you know, a lot of the really good educators from the UK and the US... And people that have written amazing books often write them from a kind of a Buddhist perspective. And a lot of people who work in death and dying um, actually do have, you know, either Buddhist leanings or are Buddhist. So there's just something something about the way they think about death. So, so yes, they, they weren't sort of talking about, you know, Buddhist philosophy or, or, you know, they don't really have doctrine, but, you know, ideas. And... I had, when I was working at the Buddhist hospice in Queensland, um, we had a week-long retreat run by um, a Buddhist nun, and um, there was there was elements of you know the Buddhist philosophy put into that. But it was always, and I think this is another thing that I found working working with Buddhists is that they just kind of went, you know, this is what I believe, and you know, I'm just putting it out there, and then you know, whatever you believe is fine. I'm not going to try and change you. Um, but you know this this is just giving you a perspective um, and so I have found you know working working in a Buddhist organization and working quite closely with some of the Buddhist nuns that there was never any of that sort of oh you know everybody must be this particular religion um, and yeah they just had some really really good ideas but yeah there wasn't a lot of that kind of um, you know this is this is what the, the Buddhist way of doing things is and that's that's the way. Yeah, I like that actually about Buddhism that it's just presented as as an alternative or as a, as a way that you can take the bits that you want and yeah. leave the bits that don't work for you and and very opening to questioning. You know, I think yeah. that's a really yeah. good aspect of that. I once read a book called Buddhism for Mothers, and that was mm. sort of similar in that I mean, it did talk about Buddhist philosophy, but it put it in a way that's like, well, this is some some way you can apply it if it works for you. And the yeah, thing that struck yeah. me from that, I only really remember one main thing from the book. Um, it was many, many years ago that I read it when my kids were young and it was about listening, you know, and or watching your emotions and observing your emotions, I should say, mm-hmm. seeing how they feel mm-hmm. in your body and then letting yourself acknowledge that before responding and, and before reacting and then actually listening, you know, the whole concept of active listening to your children and not trying to immediately solve their problems or jump in and yep. fix it or anything like that. And yep. and I I just somehow that whole concept had escaped me up until the point that I read that book. And mm. it really made, at that time, it made a lot of difference yeah. in, in the relationship yeah. you know, that we had. I, I don't know whether it really translated that well into the teenage years, but certainly in the pre-teenage yeah. years, it made a lot of difference. So, mm. um, yeah. yeah. And I think that was, that's one of the important things about them is that they actually look at their emotions. So they don't stuff their emotions down. They don't pretend they haven't got emotions. They actually say, well, you know, look at it in the light of day and, and, and be curious about it. 
um, you know, and oh, okay, so I'm really upset about that statement. So what what is that about that statement? You know, what what is it that's triggered in me that made, you know, rather than just go, oh, no, no, you can't be angry, stuff that down, or you can't be sad, stuff that down. Um, you know, is, that's another really interesting aspect. And, yes, that book, I, I unfortunately got to read it when my son was already an adult, so he didn't get the benefit of that book. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, I have seen that book, and I did pass it on to another young mother, so that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did as well. I have no idea where I got it from, but I remember passing it on to another young mum mm. and, and always recommending it to anyone else who I mm. was pregnant or what have you. <laughs> mm. uh, so the, So... You were saying before about that grief is a very individual response yep. and can mm-hmm. involve any different emotions. I guess I incorrectly called grief an emotion, so you're right. And so that must make it very interesting that every family or person that you deal with in and that you help in your palliative care has a sort of different response, different approach that keeps it interesting for you? Or do you find that, that generally it's it, there's a lot of similarities each time for different people? Um, I think both, and it's not just um, loss in palliative care. I mean, I, I do all sorts of other, you know, loss things because loss is much bigger than just loss through the death of somebody. Um, but I think I think it's a bit of both. There are lots and lots of commonalities, but there are also very, very big differences. And sometimes, like, you know, working with family members, for instance, when you know, going back to the palliative care, you know, there'll be different family members who will be perceiving things quite differently and they'll have it from their own perspective. Even if they've, you know, grown up in that same family, they might have very, very different ways of, you know, addressing the death of the person, their loved one in their family or, um, you know, worrying about other people in the in the, um, in the the family. And often the family dynamics can change too. You know, once somebody dies and, you know, suddenly that, that person who died, if they were the you know, the one who made all the decisions or if they were the ones that kept the peace in the family or if they were the ones that, you know, did whatever with the main breadwinner or whatever it was, then there's a huge hole in that family. And so everything has to shift in order to, to, to deal with, with, that, with that loss. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's, it's really, that's, I think that's one of the reasons I find it so fascinating is that people really come at it so differently Um and yet, there are you know there there are there are some commonalities there. Mm. So on SFM, we're talking with Helen Hippie. If you just tuned in about grief and loss counselling, well, that's what we've talked about so far. We're going to change tack in a minute, but I just want to ask you've mentioned a couple of times that loss and, and grief is broader than death. So, what are some of the mm. other examples of loss that that you deal with people? Well, I mean, my my theory is that that everybody deals with grief and loss, you know, on a daily, weekly basis, and and there's you know small small losses like, um, you know, you might have lost your favourite bit of jewellery that your grandmother had given you, um, or you might have, um, you know, even changing jobs sometimes. You know, even if it's something that you have chosen to do, you've you've changed your employer or you've changed your role in a particular workplace that you are that still also has an element of loss in it because whatever we're doing, there's an element of loss in order to get to a new place. You've got to leave things behind. So, you know, there's there's people that move countries and even if they're not kind of in the refugee status but they choose to move country, there are huge losses um, associated with that. And, you know, often people sort of don't see that for themselves or people don't think about it for other people because they go, oh, well, you know, you chose to move from there to there and you must be really happy you're in a new country. Well, yeah, they probably are. However, they've lost, you know, their their heritage. They've lost their family in a lot of cases and left them be... I mean, not lost permanently, but they've kind of, you know, changed changed location so, so they're not kind of living in the same country anymore. They've lost cultural stuff um, that, you know, might have been very normal and, and you know, people that have got... Um, you know, perhaps migrant, a migrant family history, you know, will relate to that. There are losses like moving into aged care is enormous and that's often not well dealt with. Um, once somebody leaves their home and goes into aged care, um, they've lost their home, they've lost their independence. In many instances, they've lost, you know, their neighbours, their friends, they've lost um, their pets in many instances. There's huge, huge loss and grief when people move to an aged care um facility for instance so there's lots of, well, another thing that often people don't really think about is like the empty nest syndrome so 
you know, your kids sort of are involved in their day-to-day life, you know, and taking them here and knowing their friends and all the rest of it and going to school meetings and all the rest of it. And then, you know, gradually they become independent. They move out of home or, you know, they move to another country to work or they get married and move into their own home. There is enormous grief associated with that, even though you are happy that, you know, they've moved out more or less, more more than less in some instances. Um, but, you know, you're, and that's that's the way it is. You know, your, your children grow up, they become independent, they do their own thing. However, there's still that loss that, you you know, you haven't got dependent children anymore and, um, you know, things are changing in your life and you're not involved on a day-to-day basis with their life. Um, so, yeah, there's just, you know, loss. There was huge losses during COVID. I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why um, I think depression um, really and anxiety skyrocketed during the years of the, you know, early years of COVID and the lockdowns and, and the stress of all of that. Depression and anxiety went up hugely because of all the losses people had. You know, in some instances, when there were lockdowns, there were, um, you know, loss of their freedom, the loss of their choice of what they were doing. Um, There was loss of the social stuff. There was huge losses, you know, from kids at school because they weren't with their friends. They were doing stuff online. There were families who were separated. And, um, you know, and you know, from knowing me for a couple of years that, you know, my my first granddaughter was born in Scotland right at the beginning of COVID. And I was just devastated that I didn't know when I would see her for the first time. And we had planned to go over and see her and be there soon after she was born. And that didn't happen. And I was just, you know, devastated about that. And even though there was, you know, um, meetings and um, Zoom and stuff like that that we caught up regularly, it really wasn't the same. And so there were huge losses associated with that and I think that's why loss and grief has become such a big topic at the moment because at one stage loss and grief was a bit kind of oh yeah okay we don't want to go there it's all a bit bit you know um dark however um there's been huge um uptick in podcasts and people talking about loss and grief and all sorts of stuff now because of the amount of people that have had such a disruption to their lives and so many losses and you know obviously there was also the loss of, of life um, that a lot of people had not sort of seen that level of loss in terms of people dying and you know everybody knew somebody that that had got really sick and some people knew people that had died some of their relatives had died so loss and grief is is everywhere and that that's why I think it's really important to sort of acknowledge the loss and grief there's loss losses of relationships you know i well i don't do relationship counseling i you know i do um work with some people who have lost their relationship for whatever reason and there's huge loss even again if they've chosen to to leave that person there's still an enormous loss of there's loss of dreams there's loss of your future there's you know it's 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 just everywhere and, and it's not kind of to paint a bleak picture of the world but it's just the reality i think that um that loss is something that happens everywhere um you know even looking at the seasons you know vegetables flowers whatever grow and then they die off and it's like a cyclic thing um Mm. and you know nature doesn't get all caught up with that fact that you know the flowers died and it's winter um it's just what what happens Mm, it is what it is yeah because i mean we are humans we're part of the world we are despite our best efforts to separate us separate ourselves from nature we still are intertwined with it so uh that's a really nice analogy i like that and thank you for sharing the story about your granddaughter because i actually was going to ask you to to do that anyway (laughs) so thank you um and you even wrote an article about is it grand grandmother grief or that's not the title of the article yeah grandparent grief i don't remember what the the title was but yes um, and it got published in one of the so um psychotherapy um magazines and i got quite a lot of feedback from that because there was a lot of people that said you know i really i really understand that and people are separated from their grandchildren sometimes through distance through things like covid um and sometimes there's estrangements um with the family or if if the the family breaks up um and you know the children go with one parent and that's not and that's not your your son or daughter and so sometimes you're not able to see that those grandchildren anymore so 
grand, you know, their the grief to do with being a grandparent is, is often also, and it's another one of those unacknowledged um, uh, griefs and, you know, pe- one of the things is disenfranchised grief where people don't kind of get that it's a grief and don't, you know, give you any credence for, for, um, for you know, grieving because they're saying, oh, well, you know, that's all right, you can, you can Zoom them or whatever. And, like, pet grief is another one that's really enormous that people who love their pets and their pets die, you know, for some people they're family, for some people they're confidants. And, you know, their pet dies and, and you know, the person who doesn't get the depth of that relationship sort of goes, oh, well, you know, just buy, go down the, the um, RSPCA and get another cat, you'll be right. But it's a hugely, hugely difficult thing for people. So, you know, loss, loss is everywhere and it's a matter of kind of working out how you can become resilient and how you can kind of roll with the punches and, and, and step up again and, you know, meet the next challenge. Yeah, a constant daily battle, as you're saying. So mm. there is uh, far more than I even was thinking, all those examples of loss and grief, and I resonate with quite a few of those, so it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so if everyone uh, been listening on YASFM, we've been talking to Helen Hip, um, who's a grief and loss counsellor from... Adelaide, but I wanted to change topics, even though that is all very fascinating, and mm-hmm. give you, Helen, a chance to tell me about your, because you're not busy enough with all your grief and loss counselling and teaching, you've also recently um, been setting up a business called Life's, Nep- Life's Next Chapter for Women. So yes. I wondered if you could share it with us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, Yes, this is something that I really got working on um, early in COVID. And one of the things I, I did um, during COVID, apart from Meet Yourself, Kath, and our other sister, um, Sharon, uh, which was another joy, um, I actually um, did a, a course with a woman called Marcy Shymoff, and it was called Happy for No Reason. And one of the things that I sort of thought about, what, and, and I think it's you can't really have grief and loss without joy and you can't have joy without some grief and loss and I've found that more and more as I've worked in both areas that 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 there's really an intersection there and it's really useful to work out what that intersection is so the happy for no reason course and I became a certified trainer in it and basically um that's looking at and it sort of sounds a bit kind of rah-rah you know happy happy for no reason and happiness has got a really bad rap because there's what's called toxic happiness where you know there's been a bit of a culture of saying oh everyone must be happy and don't ever look at any anything that doesn't make you happy and you know just ignore stuff and you know have an affirmation that you're going to be happy and you will be and you know that's not the kind of happiness we're talking here i'm actually talking about sort of an inner joy an inner resilience and inner well-being and so doing that course i decided oh actually i can actually work this and i think i can work it into a business idea so i did my own own website which i was immensely impressed with because i i'm not techie at all and i i must say i rang you a a number of times to ask your advice on things Kath, and i'm very grateful for that i'm glad i could help you since i'm not that technical myself yeah yeah you were a tremendous help yeah so looking at this um the the workshops that I run in this and it's looking at a number of sort of pillars of, of happiness and so there's there's looking at foundation of happiness which is really taking responsibility for your own happiness and looking at are you a victim or a victor in life and there's sort of that grounding stuff and you know a lot of times and I, I ran a workshop just recently um in a sort of community-based area and there was two people in that workshop who obviously thought that they were coming to a workshop called happiness from the inside out and they were, i was going to sprinkle fairy dust on them and they were going to come out happy mm. for no reason as and not do anything themselves mm. and so one of the things i talk about is it actually you know you have to work towards that it doesn't just magically happen you've actually got to put some effort in and so you know these people i suspect were a little bit disappointed in that thing because you know i don't have the fairy gold uh, the, the fairy dust to sprinkle on them and so part of that is not taking responsibility for your own happiness and you know blaming and and it's everyone else's fault and i'm never i'm never the one that's wrong um so that i you know talk a bit about that foundation and then we look at, at things like um the mind so what do your thoughts support your happiness um do you live in a negative thinking um 
uh, viewpoint that robs you of your happiness. And, you know, some of that is really interesting to uncover. And there's a whole lot of stuff about neuroplasticity saying, hey, you, you know, if neurons fire together, they wire together. And so there's a whole lot of really interesting stuff being um, done in, in um, neuroplasticity that actually says that, you know, you do have... You do have a way of, of working and on changing those negative beliefs. Um, so that's that's another one. Looking at um, the heart. So do you live with an open heart? Do you have love, gratitude, kindness, generosity, um, or do you live in a really with a contracted heart where you're looking at anger and resentment and lacking forgiveness? So that's another aspect I look at. It then is the body. So obviously, you know, are your cells happy? Do you have the biochemistry of happiness? And so there's a whole lot of um, things that have been, you know, scientifically shown now that, you know, if you do particular things um, in terms of your body and what you're eating and what you're doing and whether you're sitting out in the sun for 10 minutes a day, all of those sorts of things. And then there's looking at the soul. So do you feel really plugged into spirit and connected to the bigger energy of life? So that's not about, um, you know, are you of a particular religion, spirit is much, much bigger than that. And, you know, some people who don't have any sort of formal religion still have a connection of some sort to the spiritual. Um, the sixth thing that I look at is looking at a life with purpose and passion. So are you inspired by life? Are there things, um, you know, that really excite you? Are there things that used to excite you when you were younger and, and then you kind of left it while you were busy getting a career and having your family and growing your kids up and all the rest of it? And then suddenly... You know, you get to 50 and you go, oh, oh, what am I going to do now? I don't really have anything. And then, you know, finding that purpose and passion again. And then the, the final part that I look at there is looking at who do you surround yourself with? Um, so, you know, are the people that you are surrounding yourself with in your family, your friendship, the, you know, your workplaces, whatever, are they nourishing you or are they really bringing you down? Um, and... You know, that, that's a really interesting thing. And when I've done this in the workshops, people have gone, oh, actually, yeah, there's, you know, person X, my friend, or, you know, it might be your partner or another family member who really puts, you know, every time I'm with them, I just feel really, eh, afterwards. Um, so it's looking at all of those kinds of aspects together and looking at, you know, even if you do one thing in each of those areas, you are going to feel a lot happier, a lot more contented, a lot more joy in your life. So... That's kind of what the basis is, and I have been um, running workshops on that, but I am at the moment um, doing that as a um, trying trying to divide that up and, and do online workshops with that. Um, while I still do some local workshops, um, I am looking at, at moving it into an online course. Um, so that's one one of the things that I've worked on with that business. The second one is is looking at mentoring, and I'm looking particularly at, um, at women. And um, I've got a series of four um, four sessions that, that I run with with um, women, and I have done it one to one. But I'm again looking at maybe doing small group stuff because very often you get a bunch of women together, and they're kind of firing off each other and getting ideas and giving feedback and being compassionate and generous with each other. You know, it really makes a huge difference. So. Those are really looking at facilitating self-discovery, exploring what brought you to this point in your life and supporting the growth for change uh, so that you can live your best life. And it, again, it's, you know, working mainly mainly with women. And then the third pillar is the, the sort of grief and loss. So I do do one-to-one um, -one counselling both in Adelaide and, and also um, online because, as I said before, that loss and grief and joy and contentment and happiness really i've never run one of those happiness workshops where there hasn't been somebody who has started crying or started telling about some deep loss that they've had which the you know the feeling of happiness has kind of brought up this loss and you know that they were happy with this person or you know they were happy at this time of their life or whatever and and now they've kind of lost that um but find out ways of getting back into that and the same with the loss and grief um I, the office that I used to have was sort of next door to a couple of other people who were in an open office when I was doing the counselling. And very often I would have people laughing and in the sessions in, and they'd go, what on earth are you doing in there? How come people are mm. laughing when they're coming in talking about grief and loss? And, you know, grief and loss doesn't have to be, I mean, we're not sort of talking hysterical laughing and, 
you know, joking about stuff that's serious, but I'm talking about finding something that, that you go, oh, yeah, you know, that, that was a bit sort of funny or, yeah, I remember the time I did X, Y, or Z and, oh, we had such a lovely time and, you know, sharing stories about stuff like that. And very mm. often the, the laughter can bubble up. And one of the things with, with grief is that people sometimes resist laughing, resist um, any kind of joy because they're kind of thinking, oh, how can I be laughing when my person died? Yeah. How can I be laughing if I miss that person? And so they kind of feel like a guilt or a, that they've kind of let that person down because suddenly they're laughing. And, you know, the, the whole thing with grief and loss is to kind of, you know, incorporate that loss into your heart somewhere so that you never lose that relationship you always have that relationship and and look at it with love and contentment and you know gratitude that you had that person in your life and you had that time with them and eventually you know that's that's kind of where most people end end up at some point where they they can think of that person and go oh yes i remember that instead of just thinking and then bursting into tears or going back under the doona or whatever so there's a really big intersection between those two and, you know, I like it in, in either sort of ways that we look at it. Same with the transition, the, you know, the mentoring stuff. There's a lot of grief about, you know, things that people have left behind and changes that have happened. But then, you know, they can see, the women can see that, oh, actually, yeah, I could actually do that or I could try that or I could try something else or... You know, I've thought about this idea. How how am I going to work with that? What am I going to do with it? And that that's moving more towards their joy. Mm. It's it's sort of giving options, I suppose. Yeah, and yeah. and seeing those options instead of seeing only one path that's not leading to a good place. Suddenly, seeing yeah, oh, there exactly. are actually by roads exactly that I can right. take. Yeah. Well, your passion for this work, you know, clearly shines through, Helen. And so if people <laughs> are interested, you know, in in working with it all, they can head to. Uh, your website www.lifesnextchapter.com.au yep, that's um, and find all that information yep. uh, there was so much in what you said I think we could have another hour of conversation <laughs> just about what you were talking about but a couple of things just uh, we only got a few minutes left but yep, sure. um, the, when you were talking about laughing and people were saying it's inappropriate I thought it, that and because when they're getting together and sharing their stories I think that there's an aspect of relief you know, yeah. in, in sharing that and finding out and that relief I think could probably make that space for the for the mm. relaxation and the laughter to come, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think, you know, people you know, if they've ever been to say an Irish wake after a death, people sit around and tell stories and laugh and tell, you know, funny things that happen with that person. Mm. And that that kind of keeps that person's memory there and and has people reconnecting um, with that memory and so you know I think it's you know a really healthy thing to to really look at you know what is it about that person that I really cared about what was it that was funny about that person what am I really missing about that person so it's not all you know it's certainly in the early stages of grief yes it is um, you know much more heavy and and you know it's it's very very difficult um, to deal with with stuff on a day-to-day basis when you're in those early stages but over time and you know with support from either you know if your family or, or with a professional uh, person um, or friends there are ways of stepping forward with that with that grief and you can find joy again and many many people don't think that that's possible after it um, after grief you know whether it's the grief of losing an important relationship or the grief of losing someone through death that you really care about, or the grief of losing a job that you thought was, you know, the best job in the world and you never, ever wanted to move out of that job and then for whatever reason, it wasn't there anymore. Mm. So really important to kind of step it step it out, look for support where you can when you need it, and really know that there is um, there is something something else waiting there. Mm. That's that's really nice. And the other word that came, the one word that you mentioned was being content. And I think for me, mm. how you were saying about this toxic happiness or happiness trap that people, you know, say you should be happy all the time. I think that if you could be content most of the time yep. and content to be happy and content to be sad and content to be all the different feelings, then that brings, you know, some kind of um, degree of I want another word than contentedness now, but I can't think of one. No, I think, <laughs> Into I think your you're life. right. 
And I've just got this um, saying up on my wall, which I've had for 25 years in before I started this work. Happiness is not having what you want, but wanting what you have. Ah, yes. And yes. That, that exactly says what you were just saying. And yes. I think often people think of happiness, oh, you know, I'll be happy when, you know, I get the, the best car or I'll be happy when my garden's completely perfect or I'll be happy when my kid gets through uni or I'll be happy when I, you know, get the best boyfriend in the world or the best husband or whatever. And it's that because, you know, I'm going to be, your, your happiness depends on something else outside of you happening. Whereas mm. wanting what you have is that sense of contentment where you're going, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, it would be nice to have whatever, but I'm really contented with what I've got at the moment. That doesn't mean I'm not going to strive to get something else or move towards something else that I really want, mm. but it's not into that kind of, oh, I guess like the consumerism mad buy, 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 and you'll be happy because that doesn't really work. Yeah. And, you know, that's been shown shown over and over again that that continuous striving i'll be happy when this happens i'll be happy when that happens you know i'll be happy when i lose you know two stone mm. oh, god that shows my age doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> 15 kilos um then um you know everything will be better and then people lose weight and, it, and it, their life still isn't yeah. what they thought it would be and it wasn't really dependent on them having lost a couple of kilos it's actually other stuff that inner mm. inner contentedness the inner mm. joy the inner purpose that that is what what um that the course that I'm running actually looks at that kind of inner inner contentedness. So yeah, I think contentedness mm. is a good way of explaining it actually. Yeah. And another saying that sort of reflects that is, you know, wherever you go, there you are. Exactly. <laughs> so no matter yeah. what you have or where you are, it's still yourself you're dealing with. But yeah. So mm. well thank you so much, Helen, for coming on the radio today. Well, um I need to start playing the news any second now. <laughs> but it was really wonderful talk to you and that again so um on yesfm we were talking to helen hip from adelaide and uh, www.lifesnextchapter.com.au if you'd like to read more about what helen does uh, which is a, a lot of things and i'm constantly in awe of all the amazing things that helen does <laughs> she's a wonderful person so yeah thanks helen uh for joining us and enjoy the rest of your afternoon thanks kat